Live from New York City, it's the Gary Null Show. And now, your host, Gary Null. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Null. Nice to have you with us. This is Talk Back. You'll have an opportunity throughout the program to call in and share your thoughts, comments, insights, and opinions. We're going to begin by looking at the latest on health and healing, how to live a longer, more vital life. Grape-enhanced diet helps one part of the body. A high-fat, high-sugar diet contributes to a really specific disease. Letting go, taking responsibility, make amends, and forgive yourself. Hmm, sounds like an evangelical or New Age uh, thought process. No, it's coming from Baylor University, and I'll tell you why that's important. Adding grapes to your diet resulted in a big improvement in a major condition. And for those who were concerned about a study that said that calcium would increase your risk of cardiovascular disease, not true. Our in-depth discussion today is the omega-7 fatty acids. Very important. I know you know about omega-3s and omega-6s. Now it's time for omega-7s. Carol Stockton, Life Extension. Also, we'll talk about diabetes. They're on the increase. And then from social issues, from Eric Klein, the New York Times, Climate Change Doomed the Ancients. A nice little short overview of history on that. But also, we better pay attention because the Great Dust Bowl of the 1930s, it's back in Kansas, Oklahoma, and North Texas. Michael Snyder. Also, five facts on cancer that your orthodox medical doctor is now aggressively claiming are myths. They're not. We'll explain. It could save your life. Endless war. That's all we hear about. Five disturbing things in America's military budget by Alex Kane. Now, for those of you who watch 60 Minutes... Uh, then you know that there was a segment showing the most expensive jet fighter in history that was supposed to make all other jets obsolete is seven years over over time schedule, and I believe they said uh, several hundred billion dollars over budget, and they're nowhere near perfecting it. At no time in that discussion did they say, why do we need this? They talk about how you could see at night in it, and but think of what you could do with just what they've overspent. Let's say it's $250 billion. $250 billion will go a long way towards reforesting all of America, plus hiring people to do that over the next 10 years. That could put almost a million Americans to work if we were to plant 20 million trees in all the different states. We could also repair our ancient water and gas mains. We could repair many bridges and tunnels and dikes. That would be a good use of that money. Not just wasting it because some legislators are tied in with this private um, 
contractors, because that's all it's about. But there was no discussion about making these toys for endless wars. I'll discuss that. Also, there's a big push now against everyone who is looking for the truth and stating it, like Chris Hedges and everyone else out there writing or doing things that are causing us to pay attention. There's a movement by the skeptics. They're well-funded. We are investigating them. We intend to debate them. We intend, if they will debate, uh, we intend to show who they really are and the money they make and their political and ideological references. But before they're coming on the show, uh, we have to be aware that they're out there convincing Americans these are all conspiracies, theories. There's no truth to them. Really? Well, we believe there's a lot of truth to these conspiracies, and we've been able to prove it. And in fact, court documents and legal settlements show it. So we're going to talk about don't be fooled by conspiracy theory smears, Andrew Craig, Global Research. Also, if time permits, our substantial equivalents, meaning uh, regular grown produce, organic versus GMOs, are they the same or are they fraudulent? Nancy Swanson, examiner.corn. Also, two important studies I will get, uh, statements I will get to, because I'm concerned that the biggest financial bubble in history is right in front of us and no one is paying attention, the derivative bubble. I will talk about how big it is and why you should be concerned, because you're on the hook for 90% of it. That's right. Our legislators managed to get a law passed, and in that law is the person who is actually creating the derivative is only responsible for 10%, we the public for 90 So how big is this debt? You won't believe the numbers. In fact, there's nothing in history that equates to it is so big. Also, I don't know how many of you had a chance to hear that absolutely pathetic excuse for an interview with Brian Williams and on NBC and um, Edward Snowden. What really bothered me most about it, not that it was just terrible journalism and biased in the extreme or cowardly journalism, was the inference that, why don't you just come back? And, uh, and you know, others have done it, Daniel Ellsberg, and uh, let, let our system, you know, uh, let our system judge you. Snowden said, no way. Well, Daniel Ellsberg wrote an article in The Guardian. Snowden would not get a fair trial and carry his wrong. And then once again from Juan Cole of the informed comment, quote, Mr. Kerry, why Snowden can't make his case in our system of justice? Two very insightful and accurate and honest reasons why if Snowden came back, he'd spend the rest of his life rotting in jail, and no matter what evidence he had, it would never be allowed to be presented. So you see, we have a lot to share. But our call-in number is 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. Let's begin. We are now seeing an epidemic in type 2 adult diabetes in our youth. 
We already have an epidemic in adults. We've never had an epidemic of adult diabetes in children. And in fact, in the United States, it's uh, looked at uh, data from 3 million children and adolescents from all walks of life, all different backgrounds, and they're seeing type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and it's off the chart. So then the question is, why? Why do we have all this going on? And I believe the answer is simple. I believe it's because what we have is we have an epidemic of vaccination. And the one thing we can do is we can tie in an increase in type 1 diabetes to vaccination schedules where you overstimulate the immune system, causing autoimmune reactions. You then hamper the body from natural immunity. You then weaken the body's immune system, so now inner ear infections and conditions that historically were minor become major. And then the kid gets, let's say, an inner ear infection. They start getting antibiotics. And now the kid gets on antibiotics and knocks out their gut flora, and the gut flora is important for their immune system. So by the time the average kid is four or five years old, they've had multiple infections, they've had multiple rounds of antibiotics, and they're extremely vulnerable. And now diabetes type 1 is right up there because of what it does to the pancreas. So that is the issue. From Dr. Dana DeBalia, MD, PhD, Colorado School of Public Health, and... uh, Elizabeth Davis, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. A group of them um, did what was called Search for Diabetes New Study. They examined whether the overall prevalence of type 1, type 2 diabetes among youth has changed in recent years and whether it changed by sex, age, race, ethnicity. And despite concern about an epidemic, there have been limited data on trends regarding diabetes. Quote, Understanding changes in prevalence according to population subgroups is important to inform clinicians about care that will be needed for the pediatric population living in diabetes with diabetes and may provide direction. And oh, it's on the increase. Yeah, and so is high fructose corn syrup soft drinks. So is super burgers burgers that a child should never consume because it's way too much protein and way too much fat. And the type of confections they're eating, they're just eating mounds of processed fat, protein, and sugar. They're not exercising. That's why they have an epidemic of diabetes. There's a lot of reason to pay attention to the omega-7 fatty acids mainly because it protects us against metabolic syndrome. Now, according to Carol Stockton, who did a lot of research on this, when you look at the omega-7s, also uh, it's called PAL, P-A-L, mitolic, M-I-T-O-L-E-I-C, acid, palmitoic acid. This was discovered as a fat molecule by Harvard Medical School, and... What they found was that it helps protect us against metabolic syndrome. And uh, omega-7 can reduce type 2 diabetes, prevent the buildup of atherosclerotic plaque, increase the beneficial good HDL, lower inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein, which are 
as I've mentioned many times in this program, an increased risk of heart attack and stroke. And it's not expensive. So, by the way, metabolic syndrome, I was assuming you would know what it is. It includes heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and other life-threatening disorders that are very common in our society today. So what is this acid? What this acid is, it's an omega-7 fatty acid. Now, we know that omega-7 includes several different fatty acids. And uh, unlike the better-known polyunsaturated omega-3, omega-7s are monounsaturated fats. Among omega-3 fatty acids are beneficially large because they become incorporated into anti-inflammatory molecules, good for your brain, good for your eyes, good for your heart. Omega-7s have an entirely different mechanism of action. Omega-7s function as a signaling molecule to facilitate communications between fat and muscle tissue in your body. So what? Well, the special signaling function qualifies omega-7 to be identified as a unique, what is called lipokine. Lipo, L-I-P-O, kine, K-I-N-E. That's a hormone-like molecule that links distant body tissues to assure optimal energy utilization and storage. That's what allows omega-7 to have broad-reaching effects on various factors in metabolic, metabolic syndrome. Now, ingesting just a small amount of omega-7 has a profound effect on the body's response to energy intake and fat storage, all of which are important. And it, omega-7 fatty acids suppresses the production of new fat molecules, especially those fats that damage tissue and raise cardiovascular risk. In fact, omega-7 is so beneficial, it's actually as good as many drugs when it comes to people with elevated cholesterol and elevated high blood sugar, both of which are involved in metabolic syndrome. And if it increases, you increase your risk of heart disease. So here is a natural substance, inexpensive, all natural, no negative side effects, that is on a par with some of the expensive, very toxic drugs for cholesterol and blood sugar. So here's what it does. Now we know that metabolic syndrome, a major contributor to cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, meaning elevated glucose, lipid disturbances, meaning high triglycerides and, uh, and high low-dense lipoproteins, high blood pressure, overweight, and chronic inflammation. And it helps with all of those. So that is good. It reduces insulin resistance and lowers blood pressure, blood glucose. It normalizes abnormal lipid profiles. It fights obesity. It suppresses inflammation that drives metabolic syndrome. So, where can you get a good response to it? One of the best is it fights inflammation. You can get it through sea buckthorn. C-S-E-A, Buckthorn, B-U-C-K-T-H-O-R-N. And that way you're making sure that you're getting a, a good amount of the acid that you need. All right, diabetics should take it. People with uh, arterial problems should take it. People who are overweight should take it. So that's our nutrient of the day, and that can save some lives. 
A new study shows that probiotics provide vital protection against chronic disease. Now, when you're considering how bad most people's intestines are who have intestinal conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, colon cancer, polyps, all of those are really serious. What they're finding in is that when you take probiotics, I suggest three times a day if you have a condition, anywhere between 5 to 20 billion uh, bacteria, you can help in rebalancing the area and then take cytokine inhibitors that can turn off the inflammation. And one of the best is black cumin seed oil. Also, there is no association between calcium supplements and increased risk of cardiovascular disease in women. This is from Brigham and Women's Hospital. Quote, Calcium supplements are widely taken by women for bone health. Previous studies have suggested that calcium supplements may increase risk of cardiovascular disease, but the data has been inconsistent. A new study by researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital did not find that calcium supplement intake increases risk of cardiovascular disease in women. The study was published in Osteoporosis International and involved 74,245 women in the nurses' study over a 24-year period. So that should hopefully motivate you to make sure that you're taking your calcium supplements. Now, in my personal opinion, one of the most important foods in the world would be grapes. Grape is the ultimate healthy food. Organic grapes, because non-organic grapes are heavily sprayed, but organic grapes. This is the latest from Texas Women's University, presented at Experimental Biology Conference in California. It shows, quote, that regular grape consumption may help alleviate pain associated with symptomatic osteoarthritis of the knee and improve joint flexibility and overall mobility. That's good. Why? Because in a 16-week clinical study undertaken by Texas Women's University, they wanted to see whether or not grapes have an anti-inflammatory and anti-arthritis, osteoarthritis outcomes. And it did. They gave one group a placebo, another group uh, grape freeze-dry powder, and the results were substantial. Quote, there was a 70% increase in very hard activity for those under 64 of age consuming grape powder, while those receiving the placebo reported a significant decrease in very hard activity. So, quote, here's what their findings said. These findings provide promising data that links grapes' consumption to two very important outcomes for those living with knee osteoarthritis, reduced pain, and improvements in joint flexibility. So that's good. So eat your grapes, drink your grape juice, or grape concentrate. Psychologists explain how love makes you strong. From Jenny University in Germany. It's springtime, and they are everywhere. Newly enamored couples walking through the city hand in hand, floating on cloud nine. Yet a few weeks later, the initial rush of romance will be dissolved and the world will not appear as rosy anymore. Nevertheless, love and romance have long-lasting effects. Psychologists at German universities, Kassel and Jena, 
discovered that a romantic relationship can have a positive effect on personality development in young adults. Researchers report on this finding in the Journal of Personality. The scientists focused on neuroeroticism, uh, one of the five characteristics considered to be the basic dimensions of human personality, which can be used to characterize every human being. Quote, neurotic people are rather anxious, insecure, and easily annoyed. They have a tendency towards depression, often show low self-esteem, and tend to be generally dissatisfied with their lives. Dr. Christine Finn explains who wrote her doctoral dissertation within the framework of the current study, quote, however, we were able to show that they become more stable in a love relationship and that their personality stabilizes. The scientists um, uh, worked with 245 couples from 18 to 30 for nine months and then interviewed them every three months. Uh, quote, young adults entering a relationship can only win. Well, I would disagree with that. I believe that it depends upon what a person is seeking from the relationship, their level of maturity, and expectation, and most importantly, all of us start our journeys with a fantasy. More often than not, the fantasy is never realized. And then as we begin to have this diminished trust in the fantasy, we become angry or disturbed, but we're not comfortable with it. And frequently we keep thinking, well, it'll get better if I adjust myself, if they adjust themselves, if I change, they change, we both change, then maybe this fantasy will one day work out. It doesn't. The people who have the most successful relationships are ones who first come into any relationship emotionally stable, sharing the best that they are with another person, and having no strong arterial motives except to share the best that they are. That is rarely the case. Today in our society, more often than not, we're inspired by what someone can do for us. It shouldn't be that way, but it actually is. We become highly predatory and highly selfish in our pursuits. It's easy for us to justify this. So why should a youth of today be any different? I don't believe they are. I believe that youth today, if anything, are are living with their parents' expectations of what they need to be. There's a wonderful, in fact, not just wonderful, it is the best commencement address I have ever heard in my life. And I'm going to share it with you tomorrow. And after you hear what this man has to say to a graduating high school class, you will think, wow, did he get it right? And what's interesting is the students and the faculty and parents were applauding him. And he was actually eviscerating them. Maybe they just didn't get it. Well, I'm going to play it tomorrow. It's 12 minutes long. And I know this audience will get it. So we all are benefited by a quality relationship. We are all disadvantaged by a lacking quality relationship. And I just believe that we, we adapt and maladapt to the wrong relationships. I believe we shouldn't have such fantasies, but that's just part of our psyche to want something to be better than what it is or what it could ever be. Someone can never live up to our expectations. We have to just treat people as they are. 
one of the reasons that a lot of celebrities don't like being around non-celebrities, and I've heard this many times because I've counseled an awful lot of celebrities into the thousands, is that mom was very honest with me, and this is one of the most classically trained, respected actors in the world history. And while I was detoxing, he said this to me. Why do you think that we hang out together, live in the same communities out in, for example, California? I said, I don't know. He said, because when I'm speaking in a movie or on Broadway, the best writers in the world have spent a long time putting together the exact words and phrases. All I do is master the technique of making it all sound believable. But then we all look for the best lighting directors and makeup artists and directors because they complement what we have. But if you were to have most actors that he knew in Hollywood walk down a street with no makeup on, just as regular people, very few would actually be recognizable. And have a conversation with them, he said, and they're just as inarticulate as anyone else. But they don't want you to be this way because it is the illusion of your perfection that they fell in love with. And you could never live up to that. So we're always terrified allowing people to see us unrehearsed in a natural situation. And I, I certainly understood what he was saying, but that's also part of our society is you look at the dysfunction of people on television and you look at the extremes that we go to to glamorize people who have nothing but a superficial glamour. Look at the Kardashians. The woman became famous for two reasons. She made her own private porno and then got it out onto the Internet and she had a, a big ass. That's it. And she's made $100 million. And then everyone's supposed to pay attention to her wedding. For what? What reason? Did you hear a single word in anyone's coverage about what what their relationship means to each other, what they actually share? It's how much the wedding gown cost, how much they were going to sell the photographs or video for, uh, who was invited, who attended, who didn't, and all the arguments and crying and everything backs. Who cares? Well, unfortunately, when we get to a point where we care, it shows what we're missing in our own lives, that we have to be a peeping Tom into someone else's. So for that Germany a group that says everyone is better off in a relationship, I challenge that. I think most people are not better off in a relationship unless they first have a very healthy, happy one with themselves and they don't compromise that to be in a relationship with someone else. Let it go. Take responsibility, make amends, and forgive yourself. From Baylor University. Forgiving ourselves for hurting another is easier if we first make amends, thus giving our inner selves a moral okay. That's according to Baylor University psychology researchers. The research published the Journal of Positive Psychology uh, Journal, which is, is significant because previous studies show that the inability to self-forgive can be a factor in depression and anxiety and weakened immune systems. Quote, one of the barriers people face in forgiving themselves 
appears to be that people feel morally obligated to hang on to those feelings. They feel they deserve to feel bad. Our study found that making amends gives us permission to let go. The research article was based upon two previous studies and uh, where people dealt with <coughs> excuse me, real-life offenses they had committed, ranging from romantic betrayals to physical injury to gossip to rejection, and how those who could not forgive themselves stayed immersed in, in depression, anger, and unhealthy uh, behavior. But those who felt that they could forgive themselves come to grips with what they did. That was a good thing. So self-forgiveness was morally permissible. Furthermore, receiving forgiveness appeared to help people feel it was morally all right to let go. I would agree with that. In fact, I was just writing, for those of you who enjoyed living in the moment, prescription for the soul, on my downtime, I'm on the road now, uh, but on my downtime, I'm writing a new book. <clears throat> It'll be finished in three weeks. I'll have it out in the fall. And today I wrote a chapter called Living in Reverse. I'll just highlight a few points, and then we're going to go to our calls. I believe that we should all take a moment in our lives and just drop everything. Now, you've got to intend to do this, or you will never do it. There will always be 10,000 reasons why you can't. But you just have to say, it's all right. I have to do this. But it means no cell phones, no Twitter, no looking at your emails, just going to a place, any place, where you can just feel comfortable being by yourself. Take a notepad. What do I mean by living in reverse? I mean, turn around, look back at your life, and ask yourself, what are the most important decisions that you have made? What has been the outcome of those? Why did you make them? Who was responsible? Were you making them based upon responding to betrayal, anger, rage, jealousy, envy, need, insecurity? If you were, there can only be a negative outcome. It's much like watching one of those war movies where they put dynamite under the bridge, wait for the enemy to come, and then they detonate it, collapsing the bridge. That's what you do when you have jealousy, envy, rage, greed, need. You literally attach an energy that will ultimately self-sabotage everything you do, even though in the moment you may feel that you've gotten something. Karma will always catch up with you. You can never outrun it. You can never outlive it. But by understanding how you ended up where you are today, and the other side of it's also true. If you've made positive choices, if you've made selfless choices, if you've made compassionate and caring choices, forgiving choices, creative choices, uh, fearless choices, that will accumulate, more often than not, to something very positive. So positive or negative or some combination, that's what we are today. But instead of stopping, learning the lessons of our past, so we don't continue to perpetuate them, we just go full steam ahead into whatever we're going to do and wonder why we keep crashing. Well, that's the reason. So I believe we should take time 
and be a little introspective, take an honest look. And in that process, we can also learn to forgive ourselves. Think, wow, that was something stupid I shouldn't have done. Yeah, we all do stupid things. The question is, can you learn to stop doing it? I'm Gary Nall. Now we're going to go to some commentaries, short commentaries, but all socially relevant. And then I'm going to take calls. Our number is 888-874-4888. First up, from Mary Klein of the New York Times. Title of the article, short, it's Climate Change Doomed the Ancients. Quote, this month, a report issued by a prominent military advisor concluded that climate change posed a serious threat to America's national security. The authors, 16 retired high-ranking officers, warned that droughts, rising sea levels, and extreme health events, among other environmental threats, were already causing global instability and conflict. But Senators James Inhofe of Oklahoma and the ranking Republican on the Senate Armed Service Committee and a stalwart believer in that global warming is a hoax, dismissed the report as a publicity stunt. Perhaps a senator needs a history lesson because climate change has been leading to global conflict and even the collapse of civilizations for more than 3,000 years. Drought and famine led to internal rebellions in some societies and the sacking of others as people fleeing hardship at home became conquerors abroad. One of the most vivid examples comes from 1200 B.C., a centuries-long drought in the Aegean and eastern Mediterranean regions contributed to, if not caused, widespread famine, unrest, and ultimately the destruction of many once-prosperous cities, according to four recent studies. The scientists determined the length and severity of the drought and ancient letters from the Hittite kingdom in what is now modern-day Turkey, beseech neighboring powers for shipments of grain to stave off famine caused by the drought. The drought is thought to have affected much of what is now Greece, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, for up to 300-year-long drought. One letter sent from the king pleads for help, quote, it is a matter of life and death. Another letter sent from the city of Imar in what is now Inland Syria states simply, quote, If you do not quickly arrive here, we ourselves will die of hunger. The kingdom of Egypt, as well as the city of Gardet, on the coast of what is now Syria, responded with food and supplies, but it's not clear if they were able to provide enough relief. It certainly created problems for national security for the great powers of the time. Correspondence between the Egyptians Canaanites, uh, these Cypriots, the Minions, uh, the Assyrians, Babylonians. Effectively, the large group of the late Bronze Age includes warnings of attacks from enemy ships in the Mediterranean. The marauders are thought to have been the sea people, possibly from the western Mediterranean, who were probably fleeing their island homes because of the drought and famine were moving across the Mediterranean as both refugees and conquerors. One letter sent to a king said, quote, Be on the lookout for the enemy and make yourself very strong. The warning probably came too late, for another letter dated about the same time states, quote, When your messenger arrived, the army was humiliated, the city was sacked, our food in the threshing floors was burned, and the vineyards 
were also destroyed. Our city is sacked. You may know it. And while sea levels may not have been rising then as they are now, changes in the water temperature may have been to blame for making life virtually unlivable in parts of the region. A study published in the Journal of Archaeological Science found that the surface temperatures of the Mediterranean Sea cooled rapidly during this time, severely reducing precipitation over the coast. The study concluded that agriculture would have suffered and that the conditions might have influenced the population's decline, urban abandonments, and the long-distance migrations across that, that area. To top it off, catastrophic events in the form of a series of earthquakes also rocked many ancient cities in these areas around 1225 to 1175 B.C. These, together with the famines and droughts, would have further undermined the societies at the time, most likely leading to internal rebellions by the underclass and peasant populations who were facing severe food shortages as well as invasions by migrating peoples. We still did not know specific details of the collapse at the end of the Late Bronze Age, or how the cascade of events came to change society so drastically. But it is clear that climate change is one of the primary drivers or stressors leading to societal breakdown. The era that followed is known as the First Dark Ages, during which the thriving economy and cultures of the late second millennium B.C. suddenly ceased to exist. It took decades, even hundreds of years in some areas, for the people in these regions to rebuild. In conclusion, we live in a world that has more similarities than that of the late Bronze Age that one might suspect, including, as the British archaeologist Susan Sherratt has put, increasingly homogeneous yet uncontrollable global economy and culture in which political uncertainties on one side of the world can drastically affect the economies of regions thousands of miles away. But there is one important difference. The late Bronze Age civilizations collapsed at the hands of Mother Nature. It remains to be seen if we will cause the collapse of our own. Eric Klein is Professor of Classics and Anthropology at George Washington University. Now, a thought on that. Last year, or up to this time in the last 12 months, we've had more than 125,000 plus extreme events, meaning the worst of their kind, the most severe of their kind in the world. Not a day go by, not one, that we do not hear about some catastrophe somewhere in the world. Right now in Australia, major fires and drought that will last as long as people are alive there. <clears throat> not in anyone's lifetime in Australia, <clears throat> excuse me, will they be brought back to normal. We have now drought in in large part of the Amazon rainforest due to deforestation. We have one half of the entire continental United States in severe drought, but seven states in extreme drought, including California, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, and uh, Nevada. And right behind it is New Mexico and South Dakota and Idaho. On top of that, we have now some of the worst tornadoes, dust storms, are happening at, at an accelerated rate. In fact, from the latest study that I just have, um, quote, and this is uh, this is just as of today, 
When American explorers first traveled through North Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, they referred to it as the Great American Desert, and they doubted that anyone could ever be able to farm it. But as history has shown, when that area gets plenty of precipitation, the farming is actually quite good. Unfortunately, the region is now in the midst of a devastating multi-year drought, which never seems to end. Right now, 56% of Texas, 64% of Oklahoma, 80% of Kansas are experiencing, quote, severe drought, and the long-range forecast for this upcoming summer is not good. In fact, some areas in the region are already drier than they were during the worst times in the 1930s, and the relentless high winds that are plaguing that area of the country are kicking up some hellacious dust storms. For example, some parts of Kansas experienced a two-day dust storm last month, and Lubbock, Texas was hit by a three-day dust storm last month. We're witnessing things that we have not seen since the depths of the Dust Bowl days. And unless the region starts getting a serious amount of rain, things are going to get a whole lot worse before they get better. Over the past two months, very high winds and bone-dry conditions have made the lives of ordinary farmers in the state of Kansas extraordinarily difficult. Just check out the following excerpt from a recent article posted on agriculture.com. Quote, The dust has settled, but for how long no one can be sure. At any moment the winds may blow, moving the topsoil, soil that took Mother Nature generations to craft, even farther from its origins. One farmer reckons that precious topsoil, native to his farm in Kearney County, Kansas, now sits in a field 200 miles away, blown there by the relentless winds of March, April, 2014. Affecting counties in western Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, the eastern Colorado, it was reminiscent of what folks in the same region faced 80 years ago. Quote, there were several days we couldn't see 100 yards in front of us. Said Tom Hauser, a farmer near Ulysses, Kansas, quote, we didn't know where the dust was coming from. It was moving in here from somewhere else, just like it did back in the 1930s. When heavy winds blow day and night, and there is no rain, it creates ideal conditions for dust storms. According to some article that I just mentioned, the average wind speed in the little community of Syracuse, Kansas, has been 50 miles an hour so far this year. That's 50 miles an hour average. And since the beginning of 2014, the average maximum daily wind speed in Syracuse is 50.6 miles per hour. That's according to Kansas State University Weather Data Library. In that same time, Kansas received just one inch of rain. This is a recipe for disaster. Quote, I've had to chisel more ground this year than the last 20 years put together, says Gary Melershowski, who farms near Lakin in Kearney County. Chiseling the ground roughs it up and helps prevent soil from blowing, at least for a little while. And yet this kind of information about Texas, Oklahoma, and uh, Colorado, about great dust storms, 50 mile an hour every day, all day of wind, carrying your farm soil, your lawn soil, 200 miles away, destroying what took hundreds of years to create. It's nowhere in the news, not the major news. So put it all together, and what do you have? What you have is we running out of water, 
we're running out of topsoil. We are, average person is running out of money. 100 million Americans could not last one week without a source of income. They have no savings at all, nothing. And yet we have a government that finds no problem spending a trillion dollars on a weapons system that we shouldn't have at all and is more focused upon spying on us. Today we learned that they're now taking millions of your photographs off the web each day through the National Security Agency. This is the kind of recipe for disaster because when it finally happens in America, which I believe it will in the next two to three years, where we start having a situation of austerity that is so extreme that people will simply say enough. You can do a lot about a person's uh, life, but you cannot starve them to death without rebellion. It's coming. We just don't know when. I'm Gary Nall. We're going to take a break and come back with your calls. 888-874-4888. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. by my engineer we've had a little technical glitch so I won't be able to take calls right now as soon as he gets it corrected we will take your calls and uh, so I'm going to share something with you from Juan Cole from Informed Consent entitled Mr. Kerry this is according to John Kerry who simply said hey let him man up and come back and you know face the justice system here yeah only if you're a fool. Quote, Secretary of State John Kerry said that Edward Snowden should return home and come back here and stand in our system of justice and make his case. Kerry seems to have a high opinion of the Department of Justice and U.S. courts when it comes to national security issues. I can't imagine for the life of me why Kerry is either amazingly ignorant or being disingenuous when he suggests that Snowden would be allowed to, quote, make his case. If he returned to the United States... No one outside the penal justice system would ever see him again. The moment he set foot here, assuming he was not given a prior deal, he could maybe try to explain himself to the prison guards, assuming they didn't stick him in solitary. Here are some reasons Mr. Snowden would be unwise to trust himself to that system, given the charges against him. One, the United Nations Special, Special Rapporteur found that the U.S. was guilty of cruel and inhumane treatment of Chelsea Bradley Manning, 
who was responsible for the WikiLeaks and revelations of U.S. killing of unarmed journalists in Iraq. Manning was kept in solitary confinement and isolated 23 hours a day for months on end, was kept naked and chained to a bed, and was subjected to sleep deprivation techniques, all three well-known forms of torture, on the trumped-up pretext that he was suicidal. His psychiatrist said he wasn't. Number two, the Espionage Act, under which Snowden would likely be tried as a fascist law from the time of President Woodrow Wilson. Like Obama, scholar of constitutional law, Wilson was trying to take the U.S. into war and was used to repeal the First Amendment right of Americans to protest this action. It was used to arbitrarily imprison thousands and is full of unconstitutional provisions. In recent decades, the act was used against whistleblowers only three times. But Barack Obama loves it to death. It is an embarrassment this is still on the books, and it reflects extremely badly on Obama and on Eric Holder that they have revived it as a tool against whistleblowers. John Kirkow, who revealed CIA torture under Bush-Cheney, was prevented by the Espionage Act from addressing the jury to explain the intentions behind his actions and therefore forced into a plea deal. None of the CIA officers who perpetrated the actual torture or their superiors who ordered it have been punished. But he, who blew the whistle, is in prison and his family is in danger of losing their home because of lack of income. The U.S. public deserves to know about the torture rather than having Obama bury it the way he has buried so many other things wrong in the system. Number four, the national security official, such as Snowden, are not covered by protections for whistleblowers in the federal government, as Thomas Drake discovered. Drake helped bring to public attention the National Security Agency's abuses that Snowden eventually made more transparent. But he was forced to plea bargain to a charge of misusing government computers. He lost his career, his retirement, for trying to let us know that when faced with a choice between a surveillance system that was indiscriminate and one that was targeted the U.S. government when indiscriminate, indiscriminate is unconstitutional. And last, not only did the U.S. torture Manning, U.S. officials have on many occasions practiced arbitrary arrest and imprisonment and torture. Most often these policies have been enacted abroad at Abu Ghraib, Bagram, Guantanamo, and black sites in countries such as Poland. But arbitrary arrests trigger happy killings and extended solitary confinement are all practiced domestically as well on America's vast gulag of 2.4 million prisoners, four-fifths of them black or brown. A fourth of all prisoners in jail in the entire world of 7 billion people are in the United States. At any one time, 80,000 U.S. prisoners are in 24-hour-a-day solitary confinement. Abu Ghraib wasn't a low-level military excess. It was simply the transposition to Iraq of the ideals of an incarcerating society, dedicating to disciplining and interrogating those who fall into the system's hands. You don't get these outcomes. The fourth of the world's prisoners in a small city worth, worth people in solitary confinement by accident. These abuses are systemic and worsened by the privatization of prisons. John Kerry's notion that there is a fair trial to be had for Snowden in this cruelly flawed system is bizarre. 
Tomorrow, I'll be talking about the five facts on cancer that, well, they don't want you to know the truth about. Endless war. Don't be fooled by conspiracy theory smears and attacks against those. And Snowden could not get a fair trial, and Kerry was wrong, Daniel Ellsberg. Now, he was on trial, and I'll share with you what he has to say on this. And also, I will end with this. What is the single most dangerous thing in the world today? Derivatives. The derivative global bubble is now 20% larger than it was when the crisis hit. It is so big that the Bank of International Settlements totals the value at $710 trillion. Some say, however, it's over a quadrillion dollars. And that's more money than there is in the world. Just to give you perspective, the gross domestic product of the United States, the number one economy in the world, is $15 trillion. So if the worldwide is $710 trillion, who's doing all this? And it's the banks. But the banks, the banks are collectively 37% larger than they were just prior to the last recession. The too big to fail are far more massive than they were when the problem hit. Well, what happens if these derivative Bubbles go burst, and they will. We, the people, have to pay for it. That means it would bankrupt all of our societies in in the world. And uh, remember, derivatives, a derivative does not have an intrinsic value. It is essentially a side bet. Most commonly, derivatives contracts have to do with the movement of interest rates. But there are many, many kinds of derivatives. People are betting on just about anything and everything, that you can imagine in Wall Street has been transforming itself into the largest casino in the world, and we're the ones who have to pay for it when it crashes. J.P. Morgan has uh, has tremendous, almost uh, two trillion in derivatives. A Citibank has one point three trillion. Bank of America one point four trillion. Goldman Sachs has one one point five trillion in derivatives. And yet these same banks don't seem to have a dollar to help a homeowner and are still sticking it to people on credit card interest rates. So that tells you about our our values. And the average person is still banking with these companies. Have a nice day, everyone.